This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Chrysanthi Giotis. And this week we will be talking about very difficult subjects. On Monday last week, New Zealand closed the door on one of the darkest chapters in its history a chapter that has seen families destroyed and a community thrown into crisis. The Australian man who killed 51 people was sentenced to life without parole. While the debate quickly moved to should he serve his time in New Zealand or be deported back to the country where he was born and where he grew up, the uncomfortable truth of what this man represents to our country and our media was quietly ignored. The terrorists' manifesto pushed a far-right conspiracy theory about the Great Replacement, where white people are slowly and semantically displaced by foreigners. Extreme and fringe views? Yes and no. Undercurrents opening the door to those views are echoed in our parliaments and in mainstream Australian media. And let's not forget that last March, during that intense shock and pain, then-Australian Senator Fraser Anning used taxpayer money to put out a press release calling the attack an understandable response to New Zealand's immigration policies. In this edition, we ask, how can we have closure here, in Australia, when we have not properly debated and discussed our country's and our media's role in the shaping of this man? To help us answer this question, we are lucky to have a journalist and an academic, both well-placed to grapple with these most difficult of issues. Glyn Greensmith is an academic and journalist at Curtin University. He also works at the ABC as a journalist and is the presenter of It's Just Not Cricket. He has written extensively on the media and the coverage of mass shootings. Glyn Greensmith, welcome to Fourth Estate. Thanks so much for having me, Chrisanthi. Kishore Napier-Raman is a reporter at Crikey. He has been the editor of Oniswar and has been a legal reporter for Justinian and has also interned at the Sydney Morning Herald. Kishore Napier-Raman, welcome to Fourth Estate. Thanks for having me. Hello. Before we get into the specifics about the coverage of the Christchurch terrorist, Glyn, I'd like to turn to you first and ask for your views on how the media should cover mass shootings. You've said that mass shooters crave attention. How can the media cover these seemingly inexplicable tragedies in our community and not give the shooters just what they crave? Yeah, it's a great question. I'll keep it as simple as I can because as a, as a journalist and an academic, I'm quite used to how academics can come on and <laughs> try and translate thousands of hours of research uh, into a long diatribe. The simple answer is, is there a relationship between the coverage of mass shootings and mass shootings? Absolutely, unequivocally, yes, there is a relationship between the coverage of mass shootings and the motivation of mass shooters unequivocally, absolutely, all evidence points, and there is much, much, much of it. So let's just establish that what I'm coming at is not, it's not about, you know, feelings. 
It's not about opinions. It's about evidence from criminology, psychology, psychiatry. And from my point of view, what I'm trying to do is bring a sort of a sense of a journalistic evidence into a field that already exists. It's huge. And it's getting worse. And it's been ongoing for about 50 years that this relationship has been noted. In fact, you can chart the rise of mass shootings through their coverage. Um, in fact, one of the very first articles I wrote about this was for Crikey in 2016, because the 1st of August 2016 is, if I can misuse the word birthday, it's like the birthday of mass shootings, because it was the very first time at the University of Texas that, that uh, and there was lots of different reasons, the, the advent of television and the way things were going. But what happened that day, almost by chance, was that a script of coverage was written organically for the coverage of this crime and where the, the media began focusing instead of on the facts of the case, they would talk a lot about the shooter. They would talk a lot about the detail of the how the crime was committed. And most interestingly, from my point of view, they would speculate as to why this person would do this thing. Oh, look at this terrible crime. This is unimaginable. Let's look at everything we can find about the shooter to help us try and answer that quite reasonable question. And by trying to answer the question of why, what they did was say, well, here's some diary entries. Here's some photos. They had a photo of that guy, you know, when he was six holding a gun. They had the sheriff saying, well, we were told he suffered from headaches and thus began the speculation of motive through the prism of everything we can find out about the shooter. And on that day, Mass shootings went from once every about four or five years anywhere in the world to 15 a year that day. And they've stayed at 15 a year until the last few years when, helpfully, they are getting worse. It's not about the weaponry in that sense. The weapons existed before the 1st of August 1966. They've sure as hell existed afterwards. The reasons it's, it started, the reasons it's getting worse in the last few years has everything to do with the way that we report it. It is not some crime against journalism, which is entirely full of rules and standards to say that if the evidence points so clearly to this relationship, should we rethink how we do it? That's a very powerful argument. If I can bring you to the Christchurch terrorist, our media has played livestream video, used his name, talked in detail about his manifesto, his so-called motives. So what's your view on the media performance and do you think that the media learned any basic lessons from this event? Yeah. <laughs> uh, why am I laughing? It was awful. It was not good. I was on TV. I was on radio the day after. And when I watched back the coverage, I was there talking about the evidence of the way that we cover mass shootings. And <laughs> they were showing the things that I was speaking about, like on the screen while I was talking, like we've got to really avoid this sort of thing. And there it was on the TV. Um, I think the main thing I would point out to you that um, my, my studies have shown, because I looked at the Port Arthur massacre, and I won't go into too much detail, but what I, what I did was look at the coverage of a mass shooting that happened one month before Port Arthur in Scotland. And I wanted to see how that was covered in Tasmania. Does that make sense? Like, how was the mass shooting that happened r right before the one that was the worst in our country? How was that covered in the place where the perpetrator would have seen it? And I spoke to the psychiatrist who actually interviewed the perpetrator of that crime. And he said, oh, mate, unequivocally, he was influenced by that mass shooting. So I looked at, at how the two crimes were covered different. And they were very different. 
there was a really strong sense of of what it meant to be ethical and local and serve your community with the local shooting. So it was actually really well done. But the shooting beforehand, the one that happened overseas, well, that was gangbusters. That was sexy. That was dynamic and dangerous. Um, So to answer your question specifically, what we did was treat the Christchurch shooting like we treat all the other shootings that come out of America as foreign. And therefore, we went gangbusters. We splurged on the sensational aspects of a sensational crime. We splurged on our descriptors of the gunman without ever really treating it like he was ours, um, which I think was was pretty horrifying because isn't he Australia's worst ever mass shooter? Didn't we grow that guy and export him as a murderer? Should we not take ownership of it? And I, I note the word you used in your introduction, Chris Anthony, you know, the word closure. Um, how dare we seek closure? Who the hell do we think we are to seek closure when we grew through entirely traceable and tangible reasons? We grew a mass murderer and sent him off to another country. The fact that he did it somewhere else really doesn't matter. We need ownership of that, and we have entirely lacked that self-reflection. And I think generally speaking, as a, as a nation, we've lacked that self-reflection and that ownership. And I think that's fairly horrifying. That's so true. This is not only horrifying, that lack of ownership, it also doesn't make sense to treat shootings as foreign in a transnational world where we have global media around us all the time. So how does a a shooting elsewhere actually be any different from a shooting here when we're actually getting the same images. Exactly. And so what I would say to you, again, I'm going to oversimplify, the coverage of Christchurch wasn't the problem in Christchurch. The coverage of the terrorists that committed a crime in Norway about nine years ago now, that was the problem. The coverage of the crimes that we take from the United States, so I'm, I'm going to make a difference between an act of terrorism, which is what happened in Christchurch in Norway, and the mass random shooting, which is what happened in Port Arthur and, and what we see so much of at Parkland and Columbine and all of these, so, so many of them out of the United States. They're, they're different, but they are, there's a lot of commonality across them. Um, and so what, what we're saying is if you'd actually had some sort of thought process about how you're bringing that story into your community. Nothing outrageous, nothing that goes against journalistic principles. In fact, I think it only enhances the best of journalistic principles because speculation isn't news, and I'll say that again, because speculation isn't news. Um, If you bring those ethical focuses to your coverage here, you may not have that crime. If we'd have treated what happened in Scotland in a similar way as, as if it had happened in our community, it is my view that there would not have been a Port Arthur. If we'd have treated the coverage of Norway or they'd have treated the coverage of Norway differently, there may not have been a Christchurch. Do you see what I'm saying with that? Yeah, no, that's a very complicated but important argument to make. And it also comes back to actual journalistic practices. Kishore, I can, if I can bring you in here, I note that Crikey stopped identifying the Christchurch terrorist back in 2019. Can you talk us through how and why Crikey chose to do so? Look, I, I think the debate about whether or not you say the terrorist's name is, is a live one, and I think that that is a debate for individual newsrooms um, with individual sort of incentives and, and, and reach. For Crikey, for example, we're obviously not, you know, going to be someone's first read for breaking news. And it was perhaps then an easier decision for us to make in a lot of ways, um, if that makes sense. Um, 
And I think that that obviously that decision was informed by a desire to sort of limit boosting his message as much as possible. I think that that debate about whether to say the name is important. I'd note that Jacinda Ardern was one of the early things she said. She's was never going to say his name, refused to say it. But I think also it does strike me as as sometimes a little bit of a distraction. What Glenn was saying before is that there has been a real lack of awareness and self-reflection in the Australian media. And I think that we can get hung up for for hours on, you know, whether or not it's right to say his name, whether outlets made mistakes in the early hours after the massacre by broadcasting bits of the live stream here and there. I think while that debate is important, I think it maybe shies away from the real question, the real issue here, which is that for many years, the kinds of ideas that the terrorists sort of subscribed to in his manifesto, the things that influenced him or ideas that have been normalised in various outlets. They're normalised on breakfast TV. They get normalised in columns read by millions of people around the country. And I think that is a perhaps bigger, more, more, more difficult debate and one that we just aren't really having and we haven't had in a year and a half since Christchurch. We haven't had that reckoning. We haven't had that, that move towards closure at all. I think... It's good that outlets like mine are are not saying the terrorist's name. And I think that even more mainstream outlets like the ABC did quite good work in terms of how they reported the outcome of the sentencing hearing last week. I think they were quite sensitive in what they put out there. Um, But at the end of the day, that sensitivity and that respect for the victims and a desire to not give the terrorists more of a boost is just sort of, I think, one element to a much more broad and complex and, and difficult problem in the media landscape here. I really agree with a lot of what, what Kishore said. Obviously, my focus is the coverage of mass shootings, but I think we absolutely have to talk about... We, we have a very extreme uh, media narrative in this country that has certainly perpetuated this idea, and, and we've done no, we've done nothing to, to challenge that. Uh, but I just want to go back to a couple of things that Kishore said. One is you never heard me say if this was about naming the shooter. And the reason you have not in all of the research that I've just quoted in the last 10 minutes, I've never said that, is that often this argument is is diluted down to something as simple as you shouldn't say his name. Now, that is absolutely part of the conversation. And I am one of the experts that have signed open letters from 150 mass shooting experts from around the world who sent an open letter to all the US media outlets saying, you know, there's great value in not naming or showing the killer. Jacinda Ardern and James Comey and and actually a hundred other officials have actually agreed with us. But I didn't say that because I think it oversimplifies it. Mm. And um, one of the reasons I talked about, for example, speculation of motivation is that what we do is a deep dive into your your blogs, your manifestos, your diary entries, the home videos of you playing ping pong as a child occurred after one mass shooting I saw in Germany. You know, here's a video of a killer playing ping pong. Oh, great. I really feel like we've all learned something there. Thanks very much. Things you've said, things you've done. And, and uh, I would, I have argued that that's actually stronger, um, a stronger focus that we should take than the naming of it. I think the name of a shooter in itself isn't problematic as a matter of function. So I just wanted to make that point because one of the things that's happened with with my arguments, there was a, an op-ed in a major newspaper having basically having a crack at me without naming me. 
and having a crack at my research without having the decency to sort of say what the research was. And one of the arguments, this is in a major newspaper, you're going to think I'm making this up, was like, oh, there are some people who say we shouldn't name the Christchurch shooter. <laughs> I suppose the same people say we shouldn't name Adolf Hitler. And I was like that, look, I, you know, if you could hear me slow clapping, that is some outstanding logic you've applied there, my friend. Um, and so we've really, we've really uh, oversimplified the argument. It, uh, it is an argument and there is a conversation about it, but it's more than that. And what I would say, uh, and Kishore made this point, is that this is up to individual newsrooms. And this is one of the big things that I'm going to come in. And I think the Fourth Estate is a really interesting platform for this. We're all inherently, in our industry, anti-regulation. We're all inherently anti-government for very obvious reasons. The fourth estate is controlled by two of the other estates. So it fundamentally, from the outset, our whole concept is compromised because we're controlled by business and government, and yet we are supposed to speak to them and speak truth to power. But, but no, I don't believe anybody listening to this program thinks we should name rape victims if they don't want to be named, thinks we should name children who've been abused. I don't think anybody disagrees with, you know, us calling somebody guilty before they've had the course of law run. In, you know, there are so many rules in journalism that we all completely take for granted. And those rules are governed and regulated. It is not the most extreme position in the world for me to come in and say, can I add something to this regulation? Can I say, no, it isn't a choice for individual newsrooms because the business priorities of Channel 7 and News Corp demand that they want eyeballs on advertising and they will do whatever they need to do to get it. And if that means they want to show killers and their manifestos and bodies blown up and dead, then they will do that and they need to be reined in by people who have the public interest at heart. And so whilst I am inherently anti-regulation, I, I do believe that this falls under the same category as naming rape victims and, and minors. And you'll note that there's a lot of conversation around suicide reporting yeah. and the way that we do that. And I've heard the counter-arguments and there's yeah. been a lot of counter-arguments that said, you know what, we should talk about the method of suicide. But every single counter-argument that says we should change the rules around suicide reporting are in the public interest. They're saying we could save more lives if we change the rules. So a big part of what I have to do is just make the point that um, I don't think individual newsrooms can be trusted in this. They need a higher authority and it needs to be in the public interest. So it shouldn't be left up to them. This is a very interesting point on two reasons. So firstly, we've got the issue that we have a very white media. You know, that was brought out very strongly um, over the last year during Black Lives Matter and more recently with the damning report by Media Diversity Australia. And secondly, we do have that issue of the economics. So um, you have someone like Andrew Bolt saying things that are actually holding to these fringe views. He, was, he said um, in one of his columns... It is risky to treat seriously the manifesto of a mass murderer and a self-confessed eco-fascist, but Tarrant is in some frightening ways rational, even if his judgments are evil and paranoid. How you can describe rational someone killing 51 innocent people, including a three-year-old? So we do have these business economics of outrage, and we do have um, parts of the media which regularly attack multiculturalism. Kishore, do you think that the media in Australia has at all acknowledged that to some extent the Christchurch terrorist is the logical endpoint of this kind of coverage? 
No, I don't think it has. I mean, well, I think some outlets like Crikey have have tried to make that point. I've tried to make that point in my coverage of the the Christchurch shooting. Um, but as a whole, as a as an entire media landscape, no, there hasn't been a real kind of reckoning with that. And I think that you you make really made those points for me just then. The first is um, that a lot of outlets have monetized racism and Islamophobia. If you look at Bolt, even before that Christchurch um, column, there was one in 2018 where he basically just rewrote the Great Replacement. Like he, he said that the country is being overtaken by immigrants and that the, you know, neighborhoods are losing their character, white people are going to become a minority. That is at its core very much the kind of kind of you know language that people like that use. Lauren Southern, another big promoter of the Great Replacement, is getting a spot on Outsiders now. Um, people who say those kinds of things are in the mainstream, so that makes it incredibly awkward then for news outlets in this country to turn around and 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 you know make the point that the shooter was radicalized by a media ecosystem because at the end of the day that would mean having some awkward conversations with people that they call friends and colleagues. I think the second part of that, like you suggest, is that there is a, a real whiteness in the Australian media landscape. I, another point I'd like to kind of add here, it's very interesting to me that when you look at things that could be perceived as threats to Australia's national security, and, and obviously far-right terrorism has been cited by ASIO and all that as a real threat. And it strikes me that it's perhaps as much of a threat, if not more, than say something like Chinese foreign interference or Confucius Institutes, which you see written up in the papers all the time. And that's not to say that perhaps, you know, Chinese influence isn't something we should keep an eye on and, and, and be wary of, but it's interesting to set me, interesting for me to see which gets so much more coverage. And I would, I would say that perhaps if the media in this country had a few more people of colour, a few more Muslim reporters, you could feel the real visceral threat of someone like the Christchurch shooter who, who really understood how terrifying the rise of the far right can be, perhaps we would get not only more of a reckoning, but more of a focus on that kind of stuff. Kisha, that actually turns to exactly what I wanted to discuss next, which is the victims. So one of the most compelling things to come out of the court case in Christchurch was the impact statements from the victims' families. The vision of these people confronting the terrorist in their courtroom with their grief, their anger, their pain, their defiance... Importantly, these were faces and voices we rarely see on our screens. The terrorist set out to silence these people, and in the end he gave them a platform to speak. I have to admit, actually, Kishore, being incredibly moved by your reporting, which started exactly there with those statements, even though they were confronting statements. I might just say a few lines of it. So, when Ahad Nabi finally faced the man who murdered his father after hours of harrowing victim testimony, he did not miss. Dressed in a New Zealand warrior's jersey and the traditional Afghan hat, Nabi looked the killer dead in the eye, middle fingers raised. Coming back to this maggot, I would like to say my 71-year-old dad would have broken you in half if he challenged him to a fight. So, those are confronting statements. Why did you choose to start your article there? I think because it was just such a powerful symbol of taking back control of the narrative. And I think that's what the shooter tried to do. He tried to silence these people. He tried to destroy them. He tried to, he, yeah, he tried to show that those people had no place in New Zealand in, in a supposedly Western country. Um, and obviously these people, victims, the families had gone through so much trauma, so much pain. It was 
watching them one by one get up in that courtroom, look that man dead in the eye and and sort of speak what was in their hearts was an incredibly powerful image. Look, while this isn't the end, and, and that's something I tried to stress in that piece, this isn't the end of the kind of forces that created a shooter and created a terrorist. It is a real powerful symbol of closure, allowing people to tell those stories. And like you said, it's not common that we do see people who look like that on Australian TV and Australian media. It, it in a way, is quite saddening that the only time you get someone who looks like that is through the lens of this tragedy. Yeah, I guess I wanted to centre those people more. I, I think those people perhaps not centred enough. Even in the days after the shooting, you know, everyone wants to play detective and go into the terrorist background, look at what radicalised him and, and all that. And often that does mean that the victims and, and their families do get kind of left out of the bigger picture. And I think it's important to come back to them and, and always keep them in mind. Glenn, we've already discussed that mass shooters crave attention without wanting to turn you into a psychologist. Do you think that this turn of events with the victims foregrounded is useful? Yeah, it really is. And, and I, I can keep it. And, and I think one of the main things I'm trying to do is frame a lot of psychological, psychiatric criminology research through the lens of journalism, which is why this is, you know, the subject that I've, so I'm, you know, doing a PhD in, in mass shootings and media coverage. And so really a lot of it is synthesizing what's already there and saying, well, this is journalistic if you look at it like this. And I, I will talk directly to the newsworthiness values, to the business models, to the way that we approach what's a story and, and how we should cover it, what's local, what's international. Um, so I think that there's a couple of points I would make there. One is um, I agree with you, Chris, I think, I'm a, I mean, I'm a fan of Cry Again, I'm a subscriber. Uh, I think Kishore's work is, is, was excellent over Christchurch, and I think Crikey's work in mass shootings has been excellent for years. I think there's a couple of things I would point from a journalistic point of view. One is um, Kishore's brilliant work on the, on the impact statements, and he talked about how the killer was trying to silence these people and uh, i would also add that this killer was also trying to get you to everyone to know his manifesto he wrote some shit and he wrote it down and if this guy turned up on the street and said hey everybody i've written some shit would you read my shit we'd be like yeah you're fine thanks what we did quite clearly quite clearly was say if you want us to read that shit you better do this and you better do it big. That was a message that we have delivered time and time again. We call it in, in the field of the mass shooting research, the script of coverage. We have written a script so that any potential shooter knows what they have to do. And there's all sorts of interesting nuance in here about and at which points to why it's getting worse, because in order to break through, you have to get worse. You have to keep going for the bigger number, the more outrageous crime. And so he knew exactly what he was doing when he live streamed it. He knew exactly what he was doing. And what he was doing, he was saying, know my name and read this crap that I have written because no one's ever going to read it otherwise. And so it's really simple in that sense. Um, the other thing I think from a journalistic point of view is that I have read the most, uh, I think we all come into journalism, uh, we all have a passion, don't we? And it's usually, you can often tell where we end up, it sort of takes us towards the passions. I, I love people and stories, which is why I ended up in radio and I like to interview people and ask really interesting people questions and see what they've got to say. 
the stories in mass shootings that we miss because we only focus on the killer are extraordinary and tragic because I have read the most incredible acts of true heroism, true selflessness, true sacrifice, true courage, true inspiration. At the darkest moments of humanity, you will find, this is not some, I'm not memeing you here, right? This is not an advert for some protein shake or something in a gym. You will find the most incredible lights of humanity, the most inspirational people in the darkest moments, and we have singularly ignored them. And I would say that is a tragedy for journalism, for storytelling. The most incredible stories of heroism have existed and have never been told. And that is why looking at survivors, looking at those who were killed and what they did, looking at the victims, looking at their families, as Kishore did, and, and, and we, we've seen some wonderful reporting of those moments in the courtroom where I think um, there was a general feeling that these are the stories that needed to be told and less on the killer. And that was just wonderful. That was newsworthy. That was real. And that just shows that there are elements here that we can look at. And I would love to see us recognize that more because within this, this darkness, within a, a business model that says to divide is more profit, profitable than to unite, to scare is more profitable than to give hope, that there is actually incredible stories of hope and togetherness and and, and it's not about sitting around and singing come by ah. It's about saying these are real things that really happen. People died saving others. Those are stories we can tell. Those are stories we should tell. That's very true. I'm, I'm thinking of Jana Izzat, who lost her son Hussein, who was at the window and helping people out of the window and, and went to confront the terrorists to give people time to escape. And she said that she forgives him because she will not keep hate and she will not uh, feel like, yeah, keep that hate in her. And I feel like that has been foregrounded by the New Zealand media's stance. They really, from the moment of the shooting, said we are coming together and we will support these people, we will support these victims. However, Glyn, you also raised the point of the business model. And yeah. look, the elephant in this room is Facebook. While parts of our media might be guilty in normalising aspects of white supremacy, Facebook is actually turbocharging the dissemination of many of these views. And they have now threatened to not carry professionally produced news if they are made to pay for it. Kishore, is there a serious danger of Facebook turning into a giant 4chan, 17 million Australians looking for cat memes surrounded by an unfiltered and unchallenged place for disinformation? I mean... It's already very, very much close to that point. People are already getting radicalised off on Facebook and people's feeds are already full of full of this kind of conspiracy theories, full of racism, full of misogyny. I'm really genuinely quite worried whether or not Facebook are going to carry through with that threat, but I don't think they're taking it, making it idly. And, yeah, if you get rid of the real news, you, do, you are just left with a lot of that misinformation. The biggest problem here is that the people that get news from Facebook or at the very least benefit the most from having real news from Facebook tend to not be the most savvy media consumers. They tend to not be the people that are, you know, reading the, the SMH or whatever first thing in the morning. They're people that are genuinely quite disengaged from the media. They might incidentally stumble on something on Facebook 
um, and might get informed that way. But obviously those kinds of people, perhaps low information consumers, are also more likely and more vulnerable to be swept up into mis- in misinformation. They're more likely to believe bogus claims. They're more likely to believe in you know, 5G conspiracies and whatnot. If you take out the, the sort of chance of them incidentally stumbling on something from the ABC, stumbling on a fact check, stumbling on proper legitimate reporting, then the chances of them being swept up in the misinformation waves are so much higher. And yeah, I genuinely do fear because Facebook is already awash with with racism and, and misinformation. And a world in which there's nothing to counterbalance that is truly a scary one, I think. I uh, just uh, jump in there, Chrysanthi, because yeah, this has been a, bit, a really interesting few weeks. One of the things that's interesting for me is a, as a journalism educator with, with young people that I think is a wider lesson um, for all of us is that we, we tend to treat these entities and these concepts as some sort of amorphous mass. And what we forget, and I think it's really important, I think for this audience that we're talking to right now is really important, is this is decisions that are taken by people. And decisions that are taken by people have incredible consequences. We're only talking about Facebook because our communications minister said, hey, time to, time to cough up. And Facebook, because they seem lovely, were like, yeah, no thanks. So there's a fight going on. But it was a fight taken by our communications minister making one law. And I think a lot of what we've lost, and there was a report out this week, yet another report out this week saying, you know, the majority of Australians uh, I think one in five doesn't know who the prime minister is and about four in five couldn't name a member of the cabinet. And that is that wider democracy issue that we've got in this country. And journalism is inherent in this because you cannot have democracy without an engaged population. The, the founders of democracy two and a half thousand years ago told us exactly that. You cannot have democracy without an informed electorate. So that's us. We're here. We're not part of democracy. We are democracy. And so we see that that a lot of the crap that drives everybody crazy, a lot of the corruption, the things that don't get um, tended to are because people are not paying attention. And therefore, these individual decisions kind of get lost in the mass. It would take one minister, one decision to change the entire landscape of journalism in this country. What if we say we don't want foreign ownership like we used to have? That law was changed in the 80s to suit an Australian fellow who lives in the United States, you probably don't know him. Um, what if we had one minister who said we will fund public interest journalism? What if we had one minister who said we're going to change the business model because it ain't working and it hasn't for a while. But in return for changing the business model, we're going to take away this crap and say, well, we want a little bit more public interest, not just you know stuff that serves the public. Um, these are all decisions that could be taken. And we forget how powerful that is when... Christchurch happened, Jacinda Ardern and Scott Morrison both said, oh, should we talk about live streaming? And a lot of people have said to me um, with my research, you know, your research is irrelevant because the internet exists. And I'm like, well, if you treat it like that, then yeah, it's because we forget to ask. As soon as we ask, we might find answers, but it's a, you would be amazed how many people in high level positions of power think, oh, well, that's the way it is. That's probably the way it should be. So we won't ask. As soon as we do, we might start finding answers. So I refuse to believe that Facebook, which has been around for three minutes, is like a little tiny baby. And like all little tiny babies, it likes to vomit everywhere and have tantrums. Is uncontrolled. Like it is the world now. This is it. Everybody throw your hands up in the air and say, oh, well, we gave democracy a shot. 
Like, no, no, let's ask the question and then talk about it. Yeah, it might be complicated, but I'm fairly sure that's what we pay you for. Um, so I really believe that there are elements here where we must draw that link down to this is what governments are for. And we have such a poor relationship with our governments over the last, I would say, decade and a half. We have set such a low bar. We expect so little that we have forgotten that we should be standing up and saying, you know what, fix it. Yeah, I, that's an excellent point. And I'm I'm afraid I'm going to have to stop the conversation here. We have actually delved into some really deep issues uh, which do require attention from our media and from our polity. Thank you, Glyn Greensmith and Kishore Napier-Raman for being here. And thanks for listening to The Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is FourthEstateAU. Thanks to my producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name's Chrysanthi Giotis. Thanks for listening.